want to ask you something. What is the most useless thing you have ever seen? Type it in the chat, online crew. What's the most useless thing you've ever seen? Tell your neighbor, what's the most useless thing you've ever seen? And no, it's not your teenager. <laughs> they will grow out of that. Look at this mama bear hugging her teenagers when I said that. Yeah, yeah. Hey, I've got a few things I would nominate as some of the most useless things I've ever seen. How about these? How's that drawer for you? Yeah. And you think that's bad. What about the other drawers? Useless. Yeah, 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 that's good, that's good. Seats on the train, right, right? Who wants to sit here? That's where you stick your kid, right? So I guess maybe it's not quite useless. What do we got next? Uh, yeah, yeah, we've got um, the balcony. <laughs> and the, I, I'm sorry, I, I just got nothing when I see that. But I love this one. My favorite's coming up, though. This product contains peanuts. Right, right. So that's for people that can't see peanuts, but they can read, right? Mm, there we go. And any golfers out here? Come on. You like golf? How, you, how would you like to play with a camouflage golf ball? Right, yep. And here's my favorite. Here we go. Meatless meatballs. Absolutely useless stuff there, guys. What about extra body parts? We have an appendix. Even the name appendix tells you it's probably pretty useless, right? And our tonsils, of course. Hey, we're in the fifth message of a series called Living Faith. And what's that got to do with useless stuff? You'll find out. Hang with me for just a minute. We're using the book of James as our text. James was a real person who lived at the time of Jesus. He was actually Jesus' half-brother, and he wrote down some stuff to uh, people who were Jewish uh, who had become Christians. And he was instructing them on how to live out their faith. And we've covered a lot of ground. If you've missed any of those messages, you can pick those up on our website, our YouTube channel, our app, anywhere. Just Google WBC messages. You'll find it, and uh, you can get caught up. And by the way, if you're having to get caught up, how about maybe show up one day if you're local and, you, you know, you can actually get it live and in person. And uh, it's got a different vibe, different feel for that. The section we're looking at today in James' letter, is a controversial section of the, past, uh, of, the, of the letter of the book, and it raises a question for us. Are we saved by faith, or are we saved by works? Now, if you're not a church person, some of that language might be foreign to you. You will pick that up as we go through this message. You'll understand it a little bit more. But it's a question that people have wrestled with since the time of Christ. Are we saved by the works we do, or are we saved by the faith that we possess? Now, salvation by grace through faith is a cornerstone of the Christian faith. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9 says that we are saved by grace through faith, that it's not of works. And then in uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 7, it says that we must walk by faith. Hebrews 11, uh, chapter 11, verse 6 says that without faith, it is impossible to please God. And then Paul, actually in Romans chapter 14, tells us that whatever we do works without faith is sin. Okay? So faith is pretty important. Yes? Are you with me? I haven't lost you already? Good, good, good. Stay with me. This is important stuff. 
Today, we're going to see that three times in the text we're looking at, James comes out and says, faith without works is dead, or faith without works is useless, as useless as a camouflage golf ball or meatless meatballs. So James says, your faith is useless without works. How do we reconcile everything else we know about faith and salvation? How do we reconcile that? James is going to tell us, and here's how he kicks off the topic. In chapter 2, verse 14, it says, what good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith, but don't show it by your actions. Can that kind of faith save anyone? James is saying, if you're just saying it, but you're not showing it, I got a question for you. I'm not so sure that you're on board with that. Now, it says, can that kind of faith save anyone? What we're talking about when we say save anyone is the fact that we as people, everyone on the planet, is born into a state of sinfulness. We all do wrong stuff, right? Anybody doesn't do wrong stuff, raise your hand. Right? I see no hands. Okay, so you're included. And because of that, if we want to have a relationship with God, we need to be reconciled to God. Something needs to take care of that. Jesus did that when he died on the cross for our sins and he rose from the dead. And that's what James is talking about. You can have your faith in Jesus, that's what you need, right, for salvation, but if that faith that you say you have doesn't show in some way, then can you really say that faith is going to save you? So is living faith a faith declared? That's the question that James is asking them. Is it enough to declare that you have faith? James is challenging those who talked the talk but lacked action, the word actions in that verse is uh, actually from the Greek word ergon, which is a word that talks about work, like your employment. You have a responsibility to do your work. That's your actions. And that's what he's talking about here. He says, can that kind of faith without actions really save a person? That's what he asks here. Can that kind of faith save anyone? You know, that question was actually more of a rhetorical question. He didn't expect an answer for that. It's more of a statement. Don't you love it when people do that, right? They'll ask a question, but you know, they don't really want an answer. They're just telling you off. They're just telling you what they think by asking you a question because they think that you're too soft or whatever to be told whatever they're trying to tell you. So they ask it in the form of a question. So James' emphasis here is not on the nature of what faith is. His emphasis is on the false claim of faith. If you don't have the works, James is saying, maybe you're claiming faith falsely. Titus chapter 1 verse 6 says, Such people claim they know God, but they deny him by the very way they live. That's the Apostle Paul talking, and he's saying, if there's not life change, then that's dead faith. They can say it with their lips, but in their life, they're denying that they really have that faith. It would be fair to say that James is saying here something to the effect that there's a difference between being a fan of Jesus and a follower of Jesus. Lots of people will say, yes, I'll vote for Jesus. I like Jesus. I like him a lot. But there is a difference between being a fan and being a follower. It costs to be a follower. 
And James is going to explore that more with us here. As we've seen many times before already in this series, James likes to make sure that we understand. So, so he's going to give us an illustration. He says, just suppose you see a brother or sister who has no food or clothing, and you say, goodbye and have a good day, stay warm and eat well. But then you don't give that person any food or clothing. What good does that do? Verse 17, so you see, faith by itself isn't enough. Unless it produces good deeds, it is dead and useless. Okay, some of you are getting uncomfortable right now because we started out talking about salvation is by grace through faith and it's not of works and everything. Now we're talking a whole lot about works. Well, James is talking a whole lot about works, okay? So I'm just telling you what James says, right? What would James do? What would James say? That stuff. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 8 says, if you have food and clothing, be content. You know what that tells us is that food and clothes are basic human needs. Now, if coffee and mobile phones and Wi-Fi had been invented back then when this was written, those would have been included too, okay? <laughs> clothes and food. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says, don't worry about those daily needs. Don't worry about what you're going to wear or what you're going to eat. God knows you need those things, and he's going to provide. You know, God provides through his people. That's how God provides. The children of Israel went through the wilderness for 40 years, and he provided manna. He did that, rained it down. God doesn't so much work that way uh, in our day and age. It's generally through God's people being stirred to do something. Because of their faith. You see the connection there? Stirred to do something because of faith. That's how God provides. So if you're declaring faith and you're not meeting needs, then you, you really got to wonder, is that faith a dead faith? Jesus said uh, something in Matthew chapter 25. He was talking about meeting needs of people, the poor and uh, uh, people that had needs. He says this in Matthew 25. It says, I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me into your home. I was naked, and you gave me clothing. I was sick, and you cared for me. I was in prison, and you visited me. Then these righteous ones will reply, Lord, when did we do all those things that you just said? The righteous, or the, and the king will say to them, I tell you the truth. When you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were doing it to me. You know, I saw this played out a bit uh, over this last week, uh, and I'm not going to tell you the people involved. Uh, they'll know uh, they were involved, but there was a, a person on our campus who was walking around with the sole of his shoe coming off completely. It, it was bad, and, and someone else saw that, and they let that interrupt their day, went across the street, and bought the man two pairs of shoes, you know? That's what Jesus is talking about. When you see a need and you've actually met that need, then you've done that to me. Jesus believed that we need to be meeting others' needs. James then goes on and makes his next argument about useless faith. He says, you say you have faith for you believe that there is one God. Good for you. Even the demons believe this and they tremble in terror. How foolish. Can't you see that faith without good deeds is useless. 
Now, for those that are following along in your Bibles, you're thinking, what about verse 18? What about verse 18? I want to park it there for a second. We're going to come back to verse 18, right? Because actually, believe it or not, some people actually do follow along and they catch it when we do those things. So I skipped verse 18, but we'll come back. Here, James is saying, they, they said, if you believe one God, good for you. You've got good theology. You have good basic doctrine. Guess what? Even the demons believe that and they tremble. So the question that that poses is a living faith, a faith that is defended. So you can declare your faith and you can even defend your faith and have great doctrine. You can know all the answers. You can uh, say yes to Jesus and you can have the church lingo and you can even know Bible verses. But is that enough? Is that saving faith? Because you can say all the right things and look the right way, whatever the right way is anymore. (laughs) Faith defended. Now, even demons have good theology. And some people get troubled by this. Is that Even demons believe, well, how is that? How does that work? Because their theology is good, but their hearts aren't, right? right? Some of the things demons believe is that uh, they, they believe in the existence of God. They are neither atheist nor agnostic. They don't, don't question that God is real. They believe in the deity of Christ. When Christ would confront them when he was on this earth, they understood he was God and they declared that he was God. They believe in the existence uh, of a place of punishment. They understand that. And they talk to Jesus even about that when he was on the earth. And they recognize Christ's authority and they submit to his word. Whatever Christ said to them, they did. But not only do they believe, but they tremble in terror because their theology is good and it's scary for them because they know the truth. Now, stay with me, okay? Some people put a tremendous amount of weight and value on knowledge and making sure that they have everything doctrinally correct. Okay, I'm talking about Christians, I'm talking about church people, and they put tremendous, tremendous value on making sure that they are right. And I don't want you to hear me wrong. We need good theology. We need a good theological understanding. We need to understand the scriptures. That's why I'm here right now. That's why we run classes and teach scripture so that you can understand theology. The problem, friends, is that then when the pursuit of being right becomes the agenda, becomes the goal, becomes the end. Okay, Does that make sense? Are you with me? When the pursuit of being right is what it's all about. When I'm theologically educated, the demons are theologically educated. You see, when we get hung up on non-essential things that people are going to disagree about for centuries uh, going forward, have disagreed about for thousands of years already, when we get hung up on things that are non-essential, it distracts us from living out our faith in practical ways, like feeding people who are hungry and helping people who need a little bit of warmth. That's what James is teaching here. Missionaries learned a long time ago, and I've talked to my my friend Peter here uh, about this and the work that he does of rescuing children and stuff, is that people who are hungry, people who are are, are sick, people who are cold, 
They need to be taken care of for those needs that are obvious before they're going to be able to listen to what we have to say. And you know experientially, if someone is wanting to change you, you're going to want to know that they care about you first. You're going to be a lot more responsive if you are convinced they care about you than if they just have as their agenda, their goal to change you. And too often, friends, the church around the world has gotten so focused on the goal of changing people that they have ignored the task of caring for people. Thank you. And that, my friends, I've met so many people that that kind of behavior has pushed people away from faith rather than drawing them to it. John Takema, he's not here today because he's in another church sharing about the coach program. We had a staff retreat, and on the way back from the staff retreat, a few of us went out for dinner. And after dinner, we went to an ice cream shop, and where the ice cream shop was, uh, we, we got our ice creams, and uh, I'm sitting with my back to the shop, and somebody else is sitting over here, and then John's sitting where he can still see the ice cream shop. And we're having our ice creams, and we're chatting and everything. And by the way, John is, is a great theologian, okay? He's an apologist. He loves to defend the faith, right? But we're sitting there, and all of a sudden, John got up, and he walked back over towards the ice cream shop, and I turned around to see, and there was a homeless man who had been peering into the ice cream shop. And John said, do you want some ice cream? And he went in, bought the guy an ice cream. Now, we didn't share the gospel with him and make sure that his doctrine was all good and everything. But that was just such a demonstration. When John did that, that stirred my heart. That made me excited to actually be working with John. And that's why we, you, if you talk to John for five minutes, the stuff he wants to do in our community is, is representative of that kind of thing. I love the way Paul expresses this to the Galatian believers. He's writing a letter to believers now who were so focused on works that they had forgotten about grace. And this is what he tells them. He says, for when we place our faith in Christ Jesus, there is no benefit in being circumcised or being uncircumcised. What is important is faith expressing itself in love. They were debating about the theology of, do we need to be circumcised or not? Paul said, that theology doesn't matter. Paul's a theologian. That doesn't matter. What matters is that your faith is being expressed in love. Are we getting a picture here of what James wants us to understand? Now, back to verse 18. I said we're parking that verse. It says this. Now, someone may argue, some people have faith. Others may have good deeds. But I say, how can you show me your faith if you don't have good deeds? I will show you my faith by my good deeds. Now, the reason we parked that is because this wording can be a little bit confusing and it's actually controversial. Another controversial part of this passage is that is this first part that's in quotes, some people, someone's gonna argue, some people have faith, others have good deeds. And then it says, but I say, that's an inserted part, okay? That's not in the original language. And then you have another quote, how can you show me your faith if you don't have good deeds? I will show you my faith by my good deeds. Now, the, the, the controversy is whether all of that was said by this same someone. And uh, I think the evidence is there for that, or is James arguing and debating? I don't think that's what was actually going on here. But having explained that to you, it's not that important, okay, that we get that part of understanding this exactly right. You see the point I'm making here? 
It doesn't really matter that much. The point is this. James is saying that faith produces fruit. It's a natural outcome. I will show you my faith by my works. So what James wants us to understand is that living faith is this. It's faith demonstrated. It's not just faith declared. It's not just faith defended. It is faith demonstrated. And then he gives a couple of illustrations from the Old Testament. He says this, Abraham was shown to be right with God by his actions when he offered Isaac his son on the altar. You see, his faith and his actions worked together. His actions made his faith complete. And so it happened, just as the scriptures say, Abraham believed God and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. He was even called the friend of God. For those not familiar with this story, you can go read it for yourself in Genesis chapter 22. And I'm going to give you the spoiler, especially in the context of the things that you've heard earlier today. God stopped him. He didn't really sacrifice Isaac on the altar, and God's plan was never for him to go through with that. It was a test of his faith. Would Abraham trust God and be obedient? But you can read all of that for yourself. Now, this passage, this is, again, the controversial part, is often uh, put in opposition to what Paul says about Abraham being saved by faith in Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4 says, Abraham was saved by faith, not by works. But what Paul was saying there, what he's explaining, because there was a controversy about circumcision. And he said, Abraham was saved by faith before circumcision, before he was circumcised. So he's saying the work of circumcision didn't matter. He was saved by faith before that. James is explaining that Abraham's faith was evident when he was obedient to offer Isaac. Okay, you see the difference there? Paul is saying that his faith was declared. James is saying it was demonstrated. That's the difference here. He was declared righteous because of faith, and he demonstrated righteousness because of faith. There is no conflict. It makes sense. They work together. Paul was emphasizing the priority of of faith, and James was emphasizing the proof of faith. While faith can be the basis for justification, for being made right with God, our works are the barometer, the test of whether we actually have that true faith. In verse 24, summing up, it says, so you see, we're shown to be right with God by what we do, not by faith alone. The great theologian John Calvin said this, It is is faith alone that justifies, but faith that justifies can never be alone. That's what James is teaching us here. Calvin said it well. In Ephesians chapter 2, I think we've got a a text here that summarizes all of what, what we've been saying, what James said here. For it is by grace you have been saved. By grace you have been saved. That's what God does for us. Okay? Through faith... And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. All right? That's what God does for us. And then the next verse, verse 10, which a lot of people leave out verse 10 when they're they're quoting because they don't want the grace by faith. For we are God's handiwork. Okay, that's what God does in us. 
in making us and sanctifying us. So we get salvation by grace through faith. He sanctifies us. He makes us mature, helps us grow by his handiwork. We're created in Christ Jesus to do good works. That's what he does through us, our service. We're created for good works. And that purpose was prepared in advance for us to do. You have meaning. You have purpose. God has a plan for your life. And it's to do something with the faith that he gave to you. Works are not a requirement for salvation. If anyone's heard me wrong today. But works are the result of salvation. If we genuinely have faith in Christ Jesus, it will be demonstrated through our life. You can't stop it. Living faith is not indifferent. Living faith is involved. Rich Mullins said it like this. And he, I'm going to say it like he would have sang it. Right, right. Faith without works is like a song you can't sing. It's about as useless as a screen door on a submarine. Right? Anybody want to get in a submarine that has a screen door? Right? Justin's going to sing that for you later, but uh, yeah, I can't do it. The challenge I want to leave you today is for you to declare your faith, to say you have faith, okay? We're not saying don't say you have faith, don't declare it. I want you to be able to defend your faith. But if you stop there, James says, that's dead faith. We need to demonstrate our faith. As I said, living faith is not indifferent, it's involved, and it's time for you to get involved. We're launching a campaign today that was birthed out of James' words, not mine. In verse 15, he says, suppose you see a brother or a sister who has no food or clothing, and you say, goodbye, have a good day, stay warm and eat well, but then you don't give that person any food or clothing, what good does that do? This week, we launched our, our uh, community meal, and we had 28 people show up the first time for that community meal. It's something we're doing every week. Simon talked about it. So we're trying to feed people who are in need. But how many know winter is coming? Yeah, and some of us would declare it's early. It's already here. Forget the coming part of it. Winter is up on us. Some people are going to be cold this winter. So we're launching a campaign today called Warm Up Wyndham. Warm Up Wyndham. We want to warm up Wyndham. That's the community that we live in. And the way we're going to do that is today, next week, and the following Sunday, June 4th, that's the first Sunday of winter, we are going to collect coats and warm things like that to give out into the community through the bridge, through our networks, now, I'm going to challenge you. Today to um, to grab a coat hanger at the end of the service. And if you're moved to take the coat that you wore in today, because it's cold out there. 
Put it on a hanger. Put it on the rack. Giving away something that's useful. Something that costs you something. That's what James was talking about. He was talking about, you see somebody in need and you've got two coats and they got none, give them the coat. Or maybe even if they don't have a coat at all and you've only got one right now, give them the coat. So I want to challenge you to give up a coat. Maybe it's the one you're wearing today. No pressure for that, but if that's how you're moved to do it, that's fine. For the next two Sundays, maybe you're thinking, okay, wait a minute. This, the, the coat I wore today is too shabby. I can't give that coat away. And you go out and buy a, brand, buy a brand new one or something like that and bring it in over the next two weeks. In just a couple of minutes, this coat rack is going to magically make its way to the foyer for you to be able to activate this today, to show living faith, to demonstrate the faith that you declare and defend. Will you help? Don't just say it. Show it. Father, thank you for James' words. Thank you for the challenge that he gives us to make our faith active. Lord, sometimes uh, even as a pastor, I read the book of James and I think, Lord, why did you put James in there? He's a little bit too practical. He steps on my toes a little bit too often, Lord. But Lord, right now, I want to thank you for that because it does stir us. It does make us aware. It does help us to realize that we don't need a useless faith and that if we're not doing anything with it, our faith is useless. Help us to be practical in how we demonstrate that faith. Lord, thank you for Peter joining us today and the work he's doing in Uganda. And Lord, if you want uh, people to be involved in that, I pray that you would stir hearts there for us to be active in living out our faith. And Lord, I pray for our community that's cold. As we start collecting these coats, I pray, Lord, that you would provide the right networks to be able to get those into the right people's hands. And I pray that people will be blessed and that their winter will be just a little bit nicer because of what we're going to do in living out our faith. In Jesus' name, amen.